0: Are we
1: on? Oh, we are. Okay.
0: Our passage this morning is Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, welcome to Sojourn. So glad you're here with us. My name is Dylan, one of the pastors. It's my privilege to be able to open up the Word of God in Romans chapter 9 this morning. Let's just pray and ask for God's blessing during this time. Father, I pray along with the psalmist that you would open up our eyes so we might see wondrous truths out of your Word. Would you open our eyes to one of the millions of mercies that you display to your people through your Word? It's in Christ's name I ask this. Amen. Every parent knows this experience, and every person surely knows this experience as well, parents or not, that before long in life, these words are going to come out of a young one's mouth. That's not fair. Right? I can, I have, some of my earliest memories are going to another person's birthday party and saying, like, what is going on that I don't get to receive a present here? That's not fair. My sinful understanding of life was that everything should go well for me all the time. If it's this kid's birthday party, it should probably be my birthday party as well. That's not fair. And what happens is as sinful people coming into this broken world, we, we have these words that, that are just like on our lips almost all the time, and it won't take long for those words, that's not fair, to be directed at God. And that's what Paul addresses here in this passage this morning. Paul asks the question, actually, and then to this question, he brings up two reasons That God is not being unfair, unjust, or unrighteous in, in His purpose of election and calling that He's been talking about in Romans 9. So Paul asks the question and he gives the reason that God is not unfair or unjust or unrighteous. That God is God and He is free as God to have mercy on whomever He wills and at the same time He is God and He is this God who is free to harden whomever He wills and both of these things He does for the sake of His name and His glory. Now to show, again, Romans 9 is about this burden of verse 5 and 6. right? He is showing that God's word has not failed. And he looks at the current state, spiritual state of the Jews around him and the state of Israel. He has to say, like, what do we make of, of where they're at being cut off from Christ and what the promises that have been given to them? What are we going to make of all this? Has God's word failed? And he is trying to say, no, God's word hasn't failed, but God's purpose of election stands. His calling stands that not all Israel are true Israel. And that was the way it was from way back in the beginning when God called Abraham. The purpose of election of true Israel, he says in the last passage, was based not on Israel and their worthiness, but on God. Not on their works, not on their will or exertion, but on God. It was, and he says of Jacob and Esau, when both of them, before they were born, God says of him, Jacob, he's the younger, he's going to be the one that the older is actually going to serve. They were not yet born, and so they had not yet been able to do good or bad in any sort of uh, human sense. Right, they're not yet born. He, he purposes His purpose of election stands there. So not only was it before their works, but it's independent from their works. In other words, what's being emphasized here when he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated in verse 11, that it's because of him who calls. What's being emphasized is it's because of God, that he is independent, that he is free and sovereign in this and that this is the way, right way to interpret verse 11 is confirmed with the question that it brings up in verse 14. It raises the question, well, what then are we to think about God? If, he, if he, before they were born, he, he loves one and he says he hates the other, what are we to make of God? Verse 14, what's the question? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? If, if the calling of God, if the purpose of election of God happens regardless of works, not only prior to them, but independent from them, is God then a God who's unfair? I mean, it it kind of makes sense to us that God would look at Jacob and Esau and kind of like if he could play the movie of their lives, play the movie of their lives, foresee some unbelief and foresee belief, and then kind of figure out which one you want then. But that doesn't raise the question of verse 14, so that's not what he's talking about in verse 11. We established that last week and it's reaffirmed here in verse 14. It's not what he does. It makes sense to us that God would base his decisions, his purpose of election, his calling, that that would be based on some sort of individual's acts, their lives, maybe their morality. Or if you're looking at the Jews, their law-keeping or lack of law-keeping, possibly. Maybe their descent physically. That makes a little bit of sense to us. But Jacob and Esau aren't any of that. They're a great illustration, right? That That's not what God does. They are twins. They're within the same womb. They have the same mother, the same father. And before they are born, he says, the older is going to serve the younger. It wasn't about any of those things. And in fact, if he looked forward and saw what was going on in their life, what he'd look forward to is he'd see Jacob is an evil man. He's slimy. He's wicked. He's a liar. And he looked forward. And what do you see about Esau? He's a fool. Esau, knowing his father Isaac was a child of the promise, knowing that that promise is going to be passed down, it's going to have a physical descendant, a seed is going to come, looks at that birthright and despises it and trades it for a pot of stew. That's a fool. And so as he looks at this, like, man, there's there's not much here. But it's precisely because of his purpose of election that it's sovereign and independent and free that he chooses Jacob and not Esau and that it raises the question that verse 14 raises. Is there then injustice on God's part? It seems unjust or unfair for God's purpose of election to be this way. And again, Jacob was a liar. Why him? It leads to this questioning of God, though. What about his righteousness? What about his character? And that's a significant question. The righteousness of God, the justice of God, that's a significant question. The answer to that has all kinds of weighty implications that matter to us. Is there injustice in God's part? That's what he asks. Injustice. The the word is is the opposite of righteousness is what he's getting at. It's used in chapter 1, verse 18, when he says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, here's the word, unrighteousness of men. Same word. Is there that in God? That unrighteousness of men in chapter 1, verse 18, what does it lead to? Not only a rejection of the truth, but a suppression of the truth, taking the truth and steering it towards your own reality, whatever you want it to be, you just make it serve you. It leads to this, chapter 1, verse 21, not honoring God, not giving thanks to God. Instead of honoring and giving thanks to and worshiping the one true living God, what are they doing? They're turning and they're worshiping the created things over the creator. That's what the unrighteousness in chapter 1 does. In chapter 2 same word is used again in verse 8. Those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There again, unrighteousness is set opposite of truth. In chapter 3, verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Skip down to verse 7 again. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? You, You see, He's setting it again. In opposition to truth, our unrighteousness, our lie, is it served to show the righteousness of God or the truth? Chapter 3, verse 5, verse 7. So this injustice that God, that Paul is asking about in verse 14 of chapter 9 is an injustice that relates to God's truthfulness, His righteousness, His faithfulness to the truth in general, the, the kind of truth that would lead you to worship and serve the Creator over the creature. That's the kind of thing that's on The line here in chapter 9, verse 14. That if God acted in any other way, if he acted in this kind of unrighteousness, this kind of injustice, he'd be unrighteous, he'd be unjust, he'd be unworthy of giving thanks to him. You should serve the creature, not the creator. He would be one unworthy of worship. That's what the question is getting at. The question is, in his purpose of election and in his calling that we just spoke of in in 11 through 13 specifically, Did God act in unrighteousness there? Did he act in injustice there between Jacob and Esau? And was he being unfair in his purpose of election there? What are we to make of Jacob I loved and Esau I hated? Is God unjust with that? And Notice what Paul does with this in verse 14. As quickly as he brings up the question, which is, man, merciful, right? We have all kinds of questions from Romans 9, and Paul asks a bunch of them for us. It's merciful of God to anticipate them and then come and bring some answers to us. But notice what he does with this thought, because this thought is, is borderline blasphemous thought. To, to ascribe to God the unrighteousness that's ascribed to the unrighteousness of men in chapter 1 is blasphemy. And as quickly as he brings it up, he slams it back down. He says, no way, by no means. It's a blasphemous proposition. He says, no Way In God's purpose of election, of some of Israel to be true Israel, in calling some, not because of works, but because of him who calls, in doing those things, even in Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, God doesn't act in a way that's contrary to righteousness. He's not being unjust. He's not being unfair. He's not being in any sort of way unworthy of worship or being ascribed to thanksgiving. He's not unfaithful. He's not contradicting the truth of who he is. He's not contradicting the purpose and the call in a way that would make him unworthy of worship. To Paul, that's an intolerable thought, that injustice or unrighteousness be ascribed to God. But he doesn't just say no. I mean, he wants to give it a quick no so that we know, no, that's not true. No means, by no way. No means is that true. But he doesn't just then move on, say, that's a blasphemous thought, let's move on. He says, that's a hard thought. It's not true, but let's, let's talk about it, and that's where he goes in verse 15. So he anticipates the question, he raises it, he says, no way, and then he gets after it. He tells us why it gets an absolute no. Look in verse 15. For he says to Moses, again, he's rooting us deeply in, in truths that are revealed from the Old Testament. So again, if we have a, an issue with the truth here and with the God here, it's not just a truth with Paul or Romans 9 or the New Testament. This is an issue with the scripture. This is an issue with God. And so he takes us back to the Old Testament. He says, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And you remember the context that, that Moses says is this is... Exodus 33 that he quotes here. And the context is coming from Exodus 32, which is the golden calf incident. Not a a great part of Israel's history where where they've just kind of fresh out of Egypt. They're they're crossing out the Red Sea. God has delivered them and and, and almost as quickly as they're on the other side of the Red Sea, they start worshiping an idol. They make this golden calf. And, And Moses here in chapter 33, he pleads for them. There's this intercession for them. And here's what he asked after this. Verse 18, Moses says, please, show me your glory. And this is where the quote comes from in verse 19. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The the quote that he gives here in chapter 33, verse 19, is a little bit formulaic, isn't it? I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Now, who is God going to have mercy on exactly? It's unspecified, right? Kind of undetermined. On whomever I show mercy, that's who. Well, in what way are you going to show mercy? Well, that's indefinite too. I'm just going to show mercy on whom I'm going to show mercy. So the, the action is unspecified. It's indefinite. It's undetermined. And it's repeated. And what this is doing... Is this is preserving the freedom of the subject, the one who is doing the action? It is making clear in this formulaic, repetitious fashion that no one other than the subject, which here is God, is going to determine or will whatever he's saying is going to happen. No one other than God here is going to determine, control, or stipulate whom he shows mercy to. That's what he's getting at. Only God controls this mercy. So in chapter 33, verse 19, I will show mercy to whom I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. It reminds you of of another kind of repetitious phrase that we've seen in Exodus before as well. Do you remember Exodus chapter 3, verse 14? Moses is like, Who should I say sent me? Who sends him? I am. But not just I am, right? I am who I am. There it is again, this this repetition. Well, how are you being who you are being? It's unspecified. (laughs) And repeated, I am who I am. What's this saying? Same thing. Freedom of the subject to just be who he is, right? The revelation of this I am, that I am who I am, shows this God is a God who is completely self-existent, completely self-sustaining, completely independent of all things attached to him. This is a God who exists because he exists. That's it. That's what he gives him. I am who I am. Who he is is who he is apart from anything else. I am who I am. And so the formulate construction there is doing the same kind of thing. It's pointing to God's freedom, his absolute self-existence that nothing outside of God determines that God is who he is. It's just God. <laughs> nothing outside of God stipulates his action of his ising, aming, being. I am who I am, he says. It's the same formula in chapter 33 verse 19. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so when God Willingly, I might add, answers Moses' question. Show me your glory. verse 18 of chapter 33, he uses the same terms that he says in verse 33, 19. He says, I'm going to show mercy on whom I'm going to show mercy, and compassion on whom I'm going to show mercy. I'm going to to be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. He answers that, uses those terms in chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed... The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. There's the connection of the terms, and he's going to unpack these more. What does it mean? Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You know, this is a, a time when he, as he passes before Moses, when he's defining himself. This is what I am. This is who I'm. Li- this is what I'm like. This is who I am. This is my self-definition. This is my character. This passing by of his goodness was a revealing and a proclamation of his glory and his essential character and nature. That's what he's showing to Moses here. The Lord defines what he's like, and he does it in terms of total righteousness, gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love, but is no means going to clear the guilty. But notice as he does this revealing, he does it with some indefiniteness, doesn't he? Listen again. He's going to abound in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clear the guilty. There's some indefiniteness there, and there's no stipulations. There are other places. In Deuteronomy we saw this. In Exodus we saw this. He's like, I'm going to be faithful, and I'm going to show love to those who keep my commandments. He doesn't do that here. There's an indefiniteness here. There's no stipulations here. It's only God. God is the one deciding. All of it is part of his goodness. All of it is part of his glory. All of it is his definition, his character, and this is what he willingly reveals. And so what he's getting at here is part of being the Lord is having and maintaining a sovereign freedom to make known His mercy or not. Part of being the Lord is having and maintaining a sovereign freedom to make known His mercy or not, to reveal it to whomever He wills. It is part of God's essential character and nature to dispense mercy on whomever He wills. God is willing and committed to making this known, and he makes this glory known in passing by Moses. He's willing to make that glory known, and he does it in showing mercy and in not clearing the guilty. That's how he's showing it on whomever he wills. In showing mercy to Jacob, not because of his works, but because of the, his purpose of election, he is being God. He's revealing his character. He's displaying his nature, his goodness and his glory. And so Exodus 33, this reference here, and its links to Exodus 3 and Exodus 34, all support that, that God is not unjust in showing mercy to Jacob. He's being free and sovereign. He's being God. It's part of who He is. God gives mercy to whoever He wills as a display of His goodness and His glory. But more than just the grammar here, if we look back in Exodus, when we're thinking about the grammar, more than just grammar links us to showing that God is not unfair. Notice the vocabulary that is used, that Paul draws out of Exodus 33. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Compassion. Mercy and compassion, grace, those are the words that are being used here. Those are essentially parallel terms. I think he uses them in parallel ways here. And and mercy and compassion, these are receiving not God's justice, but the opposite in salvific terms. Right? That's what mercy and compassion he's getting at here. Not receiving God's justice in salvific terms. These words, these terms, they are free gift terms. It's mercy and compassion that led to the redemption of Israel out of Egypt. That led God to make a covenant with them at the mountain. That led God to reveal his goodness and pass by Moses in Exodus 34. But those are not obligations. These are not ought terms. God ought to do this. They cannot be demanded. They are never owed. If you say, God must give me mercy, he ought to give me mercy, all of a sudden what you've asked for is something completely different. Mercy, by its very definition, cannot be demanded. There are no conditions that you can place upon it, and if you are doing that, you have switched the term. One author says that mercy remains mercy because it's free. That's what it is. If it's not that then it's not mercy. And what he says here is God is going to have that on whomever he wills. These, again, these terms, the vocabulary he used here point to God's freedom to give or not, not to what is owed. There's no unrighteousness on God's part in showing mercy, something it isn't owed that he, does, that he owes to no one. He shows it on whomever he wills, and he's not unjust. He's being God. No one is owed mercy. I, I've been so helped by R.C. Sproul in this. He, he says, and I'll just share it because it's, I found it so helpful. Uh, not the quote yet, but it's coming. Uh, he just shares about his classroom. And in his classroom, he was a professor, and he had uh, three different term papers due throughout the year. And the first term paper, he comes, and he says, all right, hand in your papers. He says he has a, most of them hand in his paper. A few of them come to him like, oh man, I, just, I blew it. I'm transitioning from high school. I'm such a, you know, i got to figure the studying out. I just don't have that. Can you please give me an extension? Like, okay, sure, I'll give you an extension. Next month, the paper's due again. What, what happens? Well, less people come with their paper. Hey, please, you know, like, we're still, like, we're, we're adjusting. Everybody's term papers are, are due at the same time. Please, just give us a few days extension, all right? I'll give you a few days. A few days, next term paper, third month of the semester. Even less people come with their paper. And he says people start to get casual at this point. Like, hey, where's your paper? I'll give it to you in a few days. Don't worry about it, you know? And he starts pulling out his, his grade book. He says, you know, he says the name of the student. And the, Johnson, you know, where's your paper? I don't have it. F. Next person, where's your paper? Huh? I don't have it. F. Pretty soon, you, you know what's coming in the crowd, right? You know what's rising up in them. What are they thinking? That's not fair. And then he points to another student. Hey, you said that's not fair? Yeah. Okay, What did you you didn't turn in your last paper either, did you, on time? No, didn't. All right, let's go back to that one. F. And this one, F. And here's where he says, this is the quote, that the greatest distortion in our thinking, dear friends, is thinking that God owes us mercy, that God is somehow obligated to be gracious to us. But think about that. The minute the idea comes into your head that God owes you mercy or owes you grace, let a bell go off in your brain that says, whoops, I'm confusing these concepts because grace by its very definition is voluntary. God is not required to be merciful. He reserves the right to be merciful to whom he will be merciful and to be gracious to whom he will be gracious. You can plead for grace, you can beg for mercy, but you can never, ever demand it. It is God's sovereign freedom to show it. That is what Paul is getting at, and he's not unjust in doing so. He would be just in saying, oh, you didn't do this perfectly, F. You didn't live before me in a holy way, F. That's justice from God, but God is sovereign and he's free to show mercy to whomever he will and notice that he will. Did you see that? I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. God will have mercy. Think about the stories that that Paul has shared so far. Abraham, he was in idolatry. He wasn't seeking the Lord. God called him out of that. Jacob was slimy. He was a thief. He was stealing. He was a liar. That's who he was. Paul too. What does Paul say in 1 Timothy 3? We, we read this last week, but it's worth looking at again. Here it says, here's where I was. I was a blasphemer and a persecutor, an insolent opponent of the Lord. But what happened? I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and unbelief. For verse 16, I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Without God's sovereign and free mercy breaking in, where would they have been? They weren't owed God's mercy, they were owed his wrath. But God showed mercy. He had mercy. Mercy and grace are these terms that, by very definition, have to be freely given. And God declares, I will have it. That's good news for sinners. Psalm 130, verse 3, says, If if you should count iniquities, who could stand? Now, that's a good question. And the answer is no one. Paul laid that out so clearly in Romans so far, hasn't he? You don't mark iniquities, God, then who's going to stand? No one. (laughs) In Psalm 103, he he asks kind of, he, he says a good answer towards the end. Psalm 103, verse 10, he says, if he dealt with us according to our sins, like, let's think about that. What if he did? If he did, no one could stand. If he dealt with us according to our sins and our iniquities, everyone would be undone. And so when he comes in and says, God will have mercy on whomever he will have mercy, God's purpose of election then is not unjust, it's good news. It's just for all to perish. That's what's fair. fair. Being dealt with according to our sin is hell. But God shows mercy on whomever He will. And God displays His character, His glory, His goodness in freely, sovereignly giving mercy to whomever He wills. And that God's sovereign purpose of election is free from all but God, that it's based only in His will, which is, I think, what Paul is getting at in verse 15, is affirmed with verse 16. That we're on the right track is affirmed in verse 16. So if you think like, man, am I manipulating the text here? Like, look at verse 16. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. If Abraham, if Jacob, if Paul, if they were left to themselves, they'd never be worthy of calling. They would never make it into the covenant. They would never be able to be recipients of the promises. They weren't seekers of God. They were idol worshipers. They they weren't drifting toward God and just needed to gain a little bit more knowledge or have a boost. They were on a hell-bound race. They weren't arcing in the right direction. They were headed toward hell. They were living in unrighteousness. And Paul is really clear. He, He gives us more of his own story about his will apart from God. Here's what my will is apart from God. He says, I was a slave to my sin. And know what his best will as a person brought him? When Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus, it brings him on his face before him, guilty. That's the best of Paul's will. He has to fall before Jesus, guilty of sin. And that's not just Paul. Paul says in the book of Romans that that is everyone in Adam, that's all humanity. Remember in chapter 6, verse 17, he tells us about those wills that we have. We were once slaves of sin. Or in verse 20, you were slaves of sin. There's human will. The best of human will is it's still enslaved to sin and can't get out from underneath it. That's clear in Romans. Romans. And what's clear in Romans is that if salvation depends on man's will, even for a millisecond, if it depends on man's exertion, his best choices and efforts and acts, then that is only bad news for us. Cannot save us. But verse 16 says, but it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That is good news. To wills enslaved to sin and under the condemnation that is just from God, there is a sovereign, free mercy that breaks in to whomever God wills. So God's purpose of election depends on a God who will have mercy. Yes, it's a free and sovereign mercy, but he, again, will have it. The best of human will can never make mercy from this free and sovereign God owed. Or again, we're talking about something completely different. If it depends upon us, then all of us are undone, and all of us are headed toward destruction. Uh, Augustine said that free will is only capable of sinning. That is the right way to think of the book of Romans. You are enslaved to your sin. If you want it to be up to you, here's where it's going. It's bad news. You're under the the right judgment of God. But church, if it depends on the free will of God, then sinners can have hope. In God's freedom and his sovereignty, he has mercy on whoever he will have mercy. That is such good news for us. And you, you might be thinking like, as you're reading this, like he'll have mercy on whomever he wills, and that's good news? But, but how? Like, how would I know? Am I included in that good news or not? But the Bible, here's what it does. It doesn't direct an individual to that answer directly. What the Bible does is it directs us to Jesus. The scripture doesn't tell us seek out the secret will of God. It tells us to seek the Lord and he'll be found. It says repent and believe. Amen. It, it doesn't say, you know what, you need to find yourself in the book of life or not. It says you need to despair of yourself and find your all in Christ. Amen. And in a wonderful way, I think what chapter 9 of Romans does is it helps us in this. Listen to Spurgeon. He says, great truths which declare salvation to be all of grace. That's Romans 9, right? and to be not the right of the creature, because it's not owed or deserved, but the gift of the sovereign Lord, are all calculated to hide pride from man, and so what? Prepare him to receive the mercy of God. I hope you come to Romans 9, and you're like, this doesn't seem right, but it throws you down before the mercy of God, and this is a God who will have mercy. Remember the gospel. He's been displaying it in the book of Romans so far, right? The gospel is that we are counted righteous before the sight of God by our faith in Jesus. Our faith does not make us righteous. Our faith must be counted as righteousness before God, right? Who does that? God is doing it. God is the one who is counting us. So the righteous is or justified by faith alone. He counts our faith in Jesus as our righteousness. It's not faith plus something else, right? We, we don't say that the gospel is Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus free will. Jesus plus our best efforts. Jesus plus our morality. Jesus plus anything. It's none of those things. It is Christ alone who saves or not at all. Amen. There's not God does part, we do part. That's anathema to Paul. So that, so much so that in the heavens, the, the, the glimpses we get in heaven, in, in Revelation 7 there are these robes. On these saints and their white robes. Like these could you boast in that? Like look at my robe. It's really white. And look what they do. Look what they always do. And you get peaks of heaven, they're never concerned with themselves. They're always looking at the greatness and glory of God. And they're crying out, Salvation belongs part to me, part to God. Because I made a decision. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And I want us to just note in Revelation 7 that there's a multitude from all over. In other words, God's calling has been effective. His purpose of election has stood. God is pleased to have mercy. And in verse 15 and 16, they may ring in your ears as unfair, unjust, unrighteous. But for hell-bound sinners, which is all of us, it's the only kind of news that can get us to Revelation 7 where we could say salvation belongs to our God. Now there may be questions about God and his sovereignty and his purpose of election and his calling, but he is free as God. And in that freedom, what God does is he bestows mercy on the undeserving because that's all there is, and apparently he does it on a multitude because that's what's in Revelation 7. And so the freedom of God to have mercy is why there's not injustice on God's part, Paul is saying. That's reason one. Reason two is found in verse 17 and 18. It follows along very closely with the first reason. God exercises his freedom to have mercy on whoever he will. And he exercises his freedom to harden whomever he will. That's verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This is from Exodus chapter 9. That's right in the middle of some of the signs that, that Moses is, is God is working through Moses for the people of Israel. And, and if you know the book of Exodus, you know that there's this, this hardening going on. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Pharaoh hardens his heart. And it says God's hardened his heart is hardened. It seems as if the author of Exodus is kind of seeing all those three as the same thing. But in Exodus chapter 4, God calls Moses and he tells him, this is what's going to happen, verse 21. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And then that's what Paul points to here as, verse 17, I I raised him up for this purpose. So the hardening of Pharaoh was God's work. There are some active and passive ways that hardening is spoken of in the book of Exodus, but the the first one is God saying, I'm going to harden it, and the rest seems to be fulfillments of the way God has hardened it. Did he harden or did Pharaoh harden? Yes. But the one preceded the other and was rooted in the other. The author of Exodus kind of sees them all as the same. And, and what does he do? He raises him up. He hardens his heart to do what? To show his power and his name. He, he declares his name in Exodus to Moses, doesn't he? My name is the, the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. He's displaying that kind of glory, same kind of glory through the hardening of Pharaoh. And so what happens is, is that he raises him up and he hardens him and he shows these great signs, and then we do it again. And it's repeated over and over again in the book of Exodus. So Pharaoh's hardening is a display of God's power. That's the word that Paul uses here, power. It's interesting that Paul could have used a couple different words for power, but he uses the same one that he used in chapter 1, verse 16, where it says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So this is kind of salvific type power that's he says, is being shown through the hardening of Pharaoh, through the raising up of Pharaoh. This Pharaoh, this power and name, what they do through the means of Pharaoh being hardened and being raised up for this very purpose, what they do is that they start to radiate out. They radiate out to Israel first. They're right there. They're taking these things in. They're receiving this display of the, the power of God. But they radiate out even further, don't they? He says, this is my power and my name that's going to go out to who? That I might show my power and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you remember what happened? As they go out and as they encounter people that are in the way, those people are melting in fear before them because they've heard of their God. What these nations do when they hear of what God has done after having raised up Pharaoh, hardened his heart, and shown his signs is that they melt in fear or or they join Israel. (laughs) Remember Rahab? I've heard of your God. I'm in. (laughs) How can I be in? Let me in, right? And what do they say? No. No, God will have mercy on whom He have mercy, right? She joins in the people and she's saved. So in the same event, the raising up and hardening of Pharaoh, in the same event, there's Judgment. And there's also salvation. There's hardening and also there's mercy. Salvific kind of mercy radiating out to Israel, to people outside of Israel, to the nations. That's what's going on in the same exact event. Both of them are means of showing his power and his name. Both the hardening and the mercy are showing the power and the glory of his name. Not just to some, but to many nations. It's going out far and wide. And so God is not unjust to harden or to judge. In that, he is just declaring his power and his name. That's what Paul's pointing to. And it starts to spill over on Israel and, and on nations. God is exercising his freedom to harden. He's exercising it in the same way he's exercises his freedom to show mercy. It's on whomever he wills. And he points to Pharaoh, so I raised you up for this purpose. Isn't it interesting that, that the same thing is going to bring about judgment and salvation? And that's where we're going in Romans, right? He says there's going to be a hardening of the Israelites. And what does it do? Same thing spreads out to the nations. So that we could be sitting here today and have a part in the name of Christ because of what God did. We'll get there. But that's what he's going to point to. Not all Israel was true Israel. They were hardened for a purpose. Moses was raised up for a purpose. It was the salvation would go out and hit the nations. He's exercising his freedom to harden in verse 18, it says, So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Again, we can come to this and be like, but wait, it still seems unfair. All as we're pointing to is that God is sovereign and free to do these things. Seems unfair. But let's also notice that God is not hardening anyone who is not already a sinner. He is never hardening one who is deserving of non-justice. That's a complex way of saying it, right? But we can't demand mercy; we deserve justice. I think one uh, commentator helped. He, he said, "He, you know, he took a book and he released it. And if I release this book, what happens? It falls to the ground. Why? In what direction does it go? And why does it go to the ground? Right? Because there's gravity, right? It, it brings it downward, always downward. If I drop it, it's going to go down." Because it's just responding to the law of gravity. Its own weight sinks it. Now, if I want this Bible to be back up here, and I do in just a second, I will get it because we need to stick to it closely. If I want this Bible to occupy this position up here, what has to happen to it? It has to be lifted. A power outside of this, Bible, it cannot levitate on its own. Power outside of it has to lift it up. And he says this, he says, such is the relationship which fallen man sustains toward God. God does not push him down any more than I did the book. How then is the sinner to be moved heavenward? By an act of his own will? Not so. A power outside of himself must grasp hold of him and lift him every inch of the way. God is not unjust in in the hardening of Pharaoh. That was the disposition of his heart as well. He is very merciful and kind to lift us up out of that. Pharaoh's hardening, which is preceded by the hardening that God does on his heart and is purposed by God, is a hardening of a sinner. God never shows judgment to those who are just. He never condemns the righteous. But what does God tell us in Romans? There is no one who is righteous, not even one. So God is free to harden whomever He wills and show mercy to whomever He wills. And He does both with a total righteousness because he is a free, sovereign, independent God who owes no man anything except hell. So God is not unjust or unrighteous or unfair in his judgment. And what, I mean, again, Paul doesn't leave us with kind, happy thoughts at the end of this text, does he? And we still might be leaving like, man, all right, he explained it, but that's hard. And here's what we need to be careful with. We need to be careful to not think that, that somehow if we were inserted in the place of God, which is already a problem in himself, right, that we would somehow be more merciful than God. And when we stand over texts like this and say, how could God? We're, we're saying, I would do it better. I would be more merciful than him. Think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. They ask Jesus, you know, who's my neighbor? And he tells them a parable. Suppose a guy, he's, he's you know, beaten up by robbers and he's in the ditch. People pass by. One person helps him out. Bends down into the ditch, puts him on his donkey, tries to help with his wounds, takes him to the inn, pays for his stay there. He says, which one is the neighbor? And he says, well, that, that, the, the, the last one, that's the one. He says, yeah, go show mercy like that. Go be merciful like that. You know, the reason that that is so helpful and that it hits so hard is because we're not that merciful. Because we know that, that there's this disposition in us, this inclination in us to see someone dying in the ditch and walk by on the other side. But God is merciful, He is the only one that actually is the good neighbor that gets down in the ditch, that pulls someone else out, that binds up what is broken, that pays for their stay. It's Jesus. He's the only one. This is the one who took on flesh. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's always easy for us to see us outside the ditch. What we should see also is that we're inside the ditch. We are dead in our sins. Anything could pass by But if not Jesus coming to us, reaching down into that despair and pulling us out, we will stay there for eternity. But that's what he does. Because he is merciful. He takes on flesh. He comes down into our brokenness. He reaches down in the middle of it. He binds up what is broken. He pays the cost for it so that we might receive his mercy. He gets in the ditch. And here's what the scripture tells us. That all who cry out to him, receive If you're looking to Jesus for mercy he gives mercy the Bible never puts up the fence and says don't cry out for mercy he won't be hearing you because he'll show mercy on whomever he'll show mercy it never says that there's always the invitation like you remember all through the stories of Jesus there are people crying out have mercy on me and he doesn't say you know what be quiet that's not what I'm here for that's what the disciples say that's what we would probably say we're not more merciful than God Jesus is the merciful one he says bring him here Go, faith has healed you. Verse 14 is not a bad question to ask. When we look at verses 11, 12, and 13, those are difficult. Verse 14 is not a bad question to ask if there's injustice or unfairness or unrighteousness on God's part. But let me tell you now, after having gone through 14 through 18, that we need to be able to say that that's not actually the harder question. When looking at the sovereign freedom of God to have mercy on whomever he wills and to harden whoever he wills, that the real trouble becomes not the possible injustice on God's part in showing judgment and mercy to whomever he wills, but what about God's justice in showing mercy to sinners? That's a hard question. How in the world can we have a righteous God who will then receive sinners? Save anyone? That's a hard question. That's been the burden of the book of Romans so far, isn't it? How can God do that? How can he be just and receive sinners? That's the question. He does it through mercy. And remember, mercy is not injustice. It is, R.C. Sproul again coming through my head, non-justice. He withholds what is deserved and he gives mercy. This doesn't make God unjust of all who receive mercy of all who are predestined, who are called and justified and glorified? Because those people are those who are found in Jesus, whom God put forward to be a propitiation to be received by faith. He himself is our redemption. He is the propitiation, turning away the Father's wrath by shedding his own blood so that in him, anyone found in him, God could be told to be the one who is both just and the justifier. That he, Jesus, was delivered up for our sins. There's justice and raised for our justification. There's how he can be the justifier of those who have faith. Friends, I mean, Romans chapter 5. One might dare to die for a righteous person. Maybe. Possibly. But God, what does God do? He shows his love for us and that while we're still sinners, he died for us. We are not more merciful than this God. If you put all your trust... In Jesus, he is one to whom has, you've, he has shown mercy. And we are to take a meal together. And, it, and I love this meal. It's an interesting reminder of the Lord's Supper, isn't it? Interesting reminder of the great mercy of God. John Stott says this, that the Lord's Supper, which was instituted by Jesus, and which is the only regular commemorative act authorized by him, dramatizes neither his birth, nor his life, neither his words, nor his works, But only his death. Nothing could indicate more clearly the central significance that Jesus attached to his death. It was by his death that he wished above all else to be remembered. He's saying, Remember my mercy. We can play back the manger scene in plays all we want, Jesus never commanded that. We can do some sort of reenactment of stories and miracles of Jesus, fine. But he said to his church, do this in remembrance of me. Remember that mercy that has shown to you that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. That's what he wants us to do. So the Lord's Supper, here's a meal that displays both the judgment of God and the mercy of God in the same meal as it points us to the cross, doesn't it? The cross is judgment on sin. Your sin is this bad, it has to happen. That's God's judgment. But God is so good that he took it on himself so that anyone who would come to him would find and receive mercy. So if you have faith and trust in Jesus, take this commemorative meal and remember the mercy of God towards you and know that he will have mercy on whom he has mercy. Let that lead you to great rejoicing. You have not deserved your place at the table. He has bought it for you. If you're not a believer, here's what the scripture always tells you to do, is look to Jesus, the same place where he shows judgment. Look to the cross. This is where God displays his love and his mercy for sinners. And if you will trust in Jesus for your salvation, he is so willing to have mercy. Church, let's pray together.
1: God, so much going through our minds today as we encounter strong words from your word about who you are, defining your essence, a God of compassion and simultaneously a God of justice, but above all, a God who is sovereign and free to do whatever he pleases, and we are humbled before you today, and we take this meal today to remember that you are a God of love and a God of wrath. It's all bound up here, like Pastor Dylan just said, but let us not forget, Jesus, that your death was in our place. You were representing us on the cross, not your buddies, not good people who deserved to be rescued, but people whose hearts were filled with the gravity of hell, pulling us straight downward. That's exactly what each and every person in this room deserves is your wrath. But because of your sovereign mercy, we don't get that. Instead, we get ultimately you, not just forgiveness and eternal life and fellowship in the body of Christ, but we get you. You come and dwell in us, Holy Spirit, and you transform us and you fight against that nature, sinful nature that we still have in our hearts. You help us to love one another, and you even help us understand you when we come to places in your word that seem difficult and hard to grab a hold of, you are leading us, you are illumining our minds. And we pray that you would continue to do that as we go through the book of Romans. Thank you so much for Pastor Dylan and the work that he puts in to understand and explain your word with no apologies. Sometimes he has to say things that are hard to say, but he loves you and he loves us enough to tell us the truth And to explain it to the best of his ability and so we rejoice in that god we want to delight in you as we take this supper but i also pray for those today whose conscience may be stricken and convoluted and confused and may just be going away again thinking am i in or out am i jacob or am i esau and i don't think esau Ask that question. Think he just wants his stew. Think he just wants the pleasures of this world. But those that you call, they see their sin for what it is. And they know that they need rescued and they cry out to you and that's all. So God, for those who are confused and think they need to figure out if they're elected or not, um, if they see their sin and they see your cross and they say that's for me jesus save me then that's it that's what the elect believe they put their faith in you because they know they can't pick themselves up off the ground they can't pick themselves up out of hell you have to reach down and grab us god so reach down and grab them grant them repentance and faith today and assurance and encouragement and god i pray that your Holy Spirit would bear witness with their spirit that they are sons and daughters of yours today, God. Jesus, thank you for loving us. We do not deserve it. Amen.